I love Audrey Assad. She's awesome. Um, that is so true, that we are restless before we find rest in God. And so that's tonight. Tonight is a little preview of what we're going to spend about two and a half days on the first weekend in December in Andrews, North Carolina for our winter retreat, which is called The Rest of God. And this chapter in Hebrews, y'all, is one of my favorite in the whole Bible. It's Hebrews chapter 4, and the entire thing is all about rest. And so we're just going to take it apart. Um, open up your scriptures if you have them. Um, I am the first to say I'm not the best teacher of the scripture in the world. I don't have it all answered and figured out. But what I do have is an undeniable, unshaking love for the scripture because it's a means to a person. And I encounter Jesus as the living word through the written word over and over and over again. And I would want the same for you. So, um, Spirit of God, we just ask that you would illuminate the truth here in Hebrews 4 and do what only you can do. Um, as we go through this, y'all are going to realize that we can't get much past the first word in Hebrews 4.1. Why? What is the first word in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1? Therefore. Therefore means, yeah, you've got to ask why it's therefore, right? So before we can even really dive into Hebrews 4.1, we've got to go back a little bit to Hebrews 3, in particular 18 and 19. So for those of you that weren't here last time, this is perfect. Quick, quick recap. Hebrews 3, 18 and 19 sum up something that we talked about pretty much the majority of our time last time. It says this, To whom did he swear that, he should not, that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? He's obviously referring back to the Israelites. Remember how Hebrews is a recount, a retelling of previous years of the Israelites. And so he spent all of chapter 3 talking about Moses and the Israelites and how they wandered and they complained and they murmured. And in verse 19, he sums it all up. He sums up all their disobedience and the reason why, for them, they didn't enter Canaan in one word. Verse 19, and so we see that they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. One word unbelief. And so last time we talked about that really, if you were to look at every sin, every missing the mark, which is all that sin is, at the bottom of it all is unbelief. Pride, the bottom of pride is unbelief. The bottom of self-vanity and self-hate or anxiety or worry or even the bigger things that we think of as sin maybe that are more external Y'all, every single thing at the bottom of that is unbelief. It's unbelief in God for some capacity, something. And that annihilated a nation of people. Unbelief annihilated a nation of people. Unbelievable. It's kind of scary. And so the author in Hebrews is saying, because you know this, because they, being the Israelites, did not enter... For them, it was a place. It was called Canaan. It was a real place on maps. He's saying there's a charge for you now all these thousands of years later to learn from them. You know how sometimes there's those examples in your life from some people to learn what to do? And then there's people in your life, right, to learn what not to do? We have both of those. The Israelites were kind of like that. 
they were a picture in more times than not, I won't say every time, of what not to do. And the, and the author is saying, listen, we're going to talk about rest, but you are in danger of missing the rest just like they were if you unbelieve. So he goes on and says, therefore, let us fear lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. And so we talked about unbelief last time, and it kind of trickles over into this time. Before we go on, does anybody remember the definition of unbelief? It was basically one word. Anybody remember? No, unbelief was unfaithfulness, which kind of practically makes sense until I explained last time that literally it's committing adultery on God. When a man has an affair on a woman, it's called being unfaithful. So it's not just unbelief is I'm faithless. No, it's not that. You actually are having faith in something other than God. You're committing adultery. You're splitting your loyalty on anything other than God. That's unbelief. And so they didn't enter because of that reason. And here's the other thing. Belief is the only thing God asked of us. That's the only thing God has asked of us, is to believe him. He says it multiple times, Old and New Testament, and yet it's the one thing that we have a hard time doing, right? It, we find it easy to go and to do and to work for the Lord more than we do just to believe him in his word just to take him at his word, to believe every single thing Jesus said, to believe every single thing Jesus promises that he can do, to like sweat you believe it so hard. That's difficult. And that's the one thing he asks us to do. And so the idea of this, this unbelief being unfaithfulness is a very big, big deal. It's not just, oh, I'm doubting God today. I just crawled in bed with the enemy. I'm entertaining doubt of the God of the world today, me. So he goes on to literally say that. He said, you should fear. You should fear. Hebrews 4.1. Y'all realize a lot of times in scripture, and in fact, a lot of commentaries, I think, say there's one for every day, a do not fear statement, 365 days a year. This, this is asking us to fear something. I never realized that before. Hebrews 4.1 is actually saying you should fear something. What is it saying you should fear? Missing out, right? Falling short. Missing out on the available promise of God, which in this context, the promise of God is the rest of God. The rest of God, which kind of has a play on words. Because it's the rest that God gives us. It's the ceasing. It's the calming. It's the rest. But it's also the rest of God. It's like the entirety of God, the rest of him. And because of unbelief, we can have the tendency to potentially miss out on the rest of God. Um, he also, I have to say this, back in Hebrews 3.13, this is such a big deal 
unbelief is such a big deal that he actually gives a charge in chapter 3, verse 13, telling all of us to encourage each other every day to believe God. Encourage each other, one another, day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, lest any of you basically fall into the entertainment of unbelief. And so I had to kind of stop there and I said, wow, Lord, believing you is a communal project. It takes each other. It takes a body of people around you that are radically walking with the Lord, seeking his face and his word, that they themselves are believing him to look at you in the face of your unbelief and say, no, girl, I'm encouraging you today to believe, to believe him for everything he is. Yes, I know it's hard. Yes, I know things have not panned out. Yes, I can't explain circumstances. But what I do know is he is worthy of our faith, and we ought to be scared of anything that would make us unbelieve him. Do you have a community like that? When you really take stock of your community, of who it is you're doing life with, maybe it's two people, maybe it's a small group, because of their influence, are you radically spurred on to believe God to the degree that you never thought? I would hope that's the case. It's part of the reason why Roots Groups exist. And they just launched last week, and it was phenomenal. But we need each other to spur each other on to believe. How many of us have sat in circles where we spur each other on to doubt? I can count, unfortunately, on way too many fingers how many times that's happened. And you get into it, and it's, yes, it's hard, and circumstances happen, but, oh, God, would you make us women that encourage one another to believe? And sometimes believing is with tears, absolutely. Sometimes believing is with questions, absolutely. And you can believe and question at the same time. Different talk for a different day, but that's actually possible. And we see that actually in Gideon and Judges 6. But the point is, we need each other to go to war for one another to believe. To believe God at his word, that his promises are true, which means today, the, pro the one promise, there's millions, hello, but the one promise we're focusing on today is there's rest available for you. There's rest available. That's the promise that we can come short of entering in through unbelief. And we need a body of women around us and whoever it is you date and whoever it is you marry and whatever little children you raise, that whole communal body around you should be one that spurs you on to believe God. And if there's anything that doesn't, then guess what? That's not community, and that's to be removed. Pretty powerful. So fear, unbelief. If you're going to fear anything, fear unbelief. Fear not entering into his rest. Be scared of that. And we spend so much time fearing what other people think and fearing even, for that matter, what God thinks of us. And if you read the scripture, it'll debunk that fear pretty quickly. But the one thing he's saying, yeah, you better fear this. Fear missing out on rest. I know a lot of restless women. And I, 
I break for them. I used to be one of them um, as a believer, just spread thin, just really wide and about an inch deep. And I think in the city of Atlanta and wherever y'all are from, um, there is a, a tendency among women to be restless and to push aside rest and to receive activity where I get my identity. And this whole entire chapter flies in the face of that and says, no, actually, your acting comes from your resting. Your working, your producing, your efficiency, your job, your to-do, all of that should be a byproduct of your resting. Think about a tree, right? Think about, I mean, this is the whole logo of Establisher. It's the reason why. The fruit of the tree only can happen based on the root system of the tree, right? The deeper the roots are resting into the ground, getting soil, getting sunlight, shooting it up the trunk, doing all of that, fruit happens. We see it in nature, but why don't we see it in human nature? We see the opposite. We see a bunch of fruit production, and I want to try, and I want to work, and I want to go, and I want to do, and I got to be active, and I need to be in this group, and I need to, I need to read my Bible. Even that can be a danger if you're not doing it from a place of resting. If you're doing it from a place of working, it will wear you out. And it's set up that way. He designed it that way. Because he has shown us through multiple different avenues, sheep and a shepherd, roots in a tree, it's all about the source of your productivity, the source of your fruit more than it is your fruit. And in this case, the source of what we do is our resting, is our reclining into God and saying, Lord, I am living in a posture of rest. And we're going to define that word in a minute because it isn't what we think in our culture. Um, <clears throat> so how, obviously, a side of unbelief, how do you think, what ways do you think you might come short of rest? Unbelief's a big one. We're going to unpack that. So we got that one. Anything else that comes to your mind that could potentially, maybe for you personally, cause you to miss out on rest? The promise of God here. We'll just be vulnerable. It's no big deal. Anybody want to share? I'll tell you what I put down. I put down resisting it. Just flat out saying, I'd rather work than rest. It's, it's my comfort zone. I'm type A. I can get things done, and I can, I can force that into my Christianity. And out of that, I, to be honest, I get fulfillment. So instead of me entering into your rest, ridiculously, I rest. That's, it's, it's insane, okay? Because Jesus had what kind of work on the cross? What was his phrase, the one word he said, telestai, meant it is finished, right? So the work is finished, and Sarah, you're going to add to a finished work. You're going to work for resting that the Son of God bought for you. Yeah, I am. And that was one of the first ones I put down as I resist it. I resist the rest of God. 
and I work myself to death for God. I know a lot of people that fall in that category. And in his grace and in his mercy, he can wrap me back around and say, Sarah, even through this study, just recline into me. Just receive what I have done. Stop working for what you already have. You already have it. You already have a rest posture with me because of Jesus. So stop working for what's yours. Some of y'all may be like me that it's easier to give than it is to receive. It's easier to, to create atmospheres for other people to get rest than it is for you to rest. Nurses do that. Amazing things. Doctors can do that. Wives can do that for their husbands. We can create atmospheres of rest for everybody else at the expense of our own rest. And God is saying, that's not what I have tonight. Tonight I have a personal, individual invitation for each one of you. Wherever you are in life, whatever your role, whatever your job, rest is available. Will you resist it? Will you work for what's already yours? Will you just receive it? Anybody, any other ideas of what could maybe cause you to miss out on rest? Okay, totally. You want to control it. You want to define what rest looks like. That's on my list too. You want to confine and define what rest looks like. Or I'll decide when I get to rest. So control's huge, and usually control and fear go a lot hand in hand. And both of those things can get into the fabric of a woman's DNA overnight. Control and fear can rob you of life, ladies. They can rob you of motherhood. They can rob you of marriage. They can rob you of fulfillment as a single woman of God. If you fear and you control, you are not in rest. Oh, if I can use that word. Speaking from experience, praise God he delivered me. I also wrote down uh, disobeying it, which kind of goes hand in hand to resisting, working for it, resisting it, disobeying it, doubting it, and then wavering in unbelief about it. Um, turn with me real quick to Romans 4.20. So the Israelites are an example of what not to do with entering rest and how they missed out on it. I'm going to show you an example of what to do. Romans 4.20. This is the famous passage about Abraham, who is our father of faith, by the way, whose seed we are from, who was known as the father of faith, right? Not the father of unbelief. So he must have done something right. He did a lot of things right, but this is a, a recap of a certain promise that God spoke to Abraham that he had an option to either freak out over and try to figure it out or to rest in it and believe it and gain what the promise said, okay? So Hebrews chapter 4, um, let's just, okay, I'm going to start in verse 19. So basically, y'all, this has to do with the promise of a son, right? Isaac was the promised child of God to Abraham and Sarah, whom I'm named after, so I know the story super, super well. But basically, y'all know how it goes. Sarah was really old, and she was barren. And it actually goes on to say that, that Abraham himself was about 100. 
So even back then, which they lived to 900 plus years, but even back then, that was beyond childbearing years. Clearly today, obviously, it is too. So this was a sheer impossibility. And so he has this promise of God spoken to him and to Sarah. If you go back and read the story in Genesis 16, it's pretty, pretty fascinating, Sarah's response. She is an example of what not to do in this case, but we're going to focus on Abraham. He does something very interesting. In verse 19, it says, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplates his own body. Now as good as dead, since he's about 100 years old, and he contemplates the deadness of Sarah's womb. So let me just say this right here. Faith in God is not denial. Does that make sense? Abraham is not sitting there denying the fact that the reality is I'm old and my wife's barren. He's looking at it square in the face going, God promised this, and I see this. But he did that without becoming weak in faith. That's massive. Have ever had a circumstance where you are looking at it in the face, clear as day, knowing God has a promise for you? I don't know what it is. I don't want to stick anything in that, but y'all use your imagination. In your prayer life with the Lord, in what you believe he's asking you to believe, he's spoken a promise to you. It's validated by his word. He's asking you to believe him, and now you're looking at a circumstance that screams everything is a no. Y'all been there? Have you been able to look at the circumstances and call them what they are, knowing the promise of God in the back of your mind, and not become weak in your faith? That is a huge secret tip to the Christian life. And he tells us how he did it. So read on. Verse 20. This is his how. He respected the promise of God. With respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. In fact, get this, but he grew strong in faith. His faith just doubled giving glory to God and being fully assured that what he, capital H, had promised, he, capital H, was able also to perform. Y'all, this is huge. I could sit here all night. There are so many keys in this to believing God for the promise and in particular, Hebrews chapter 4, for believing God for the promise of rest. Abraham respected the promise. Sarah didn't. Go back and read Genesis 16 and see her response. She laughs at God. Flat out mocks him. Says, yeah, right, I'm going to have a son. Really? And God goes, yep, this time next year, your body is going to birth a son. And she just laughs and says, no way. And you know what she does? She goes on her own through Hagar and produces Ishmael and comes up with her own plan because she did not respect the promise of God. Abraham respected the promise of God. He did not waver in unbelief. It's almost like I have this word picture in my my mind of of women on a tightrope, right? And if life is on either side of the tightrope and faith is the tightrope that gets you through life, they're just wobbling, 
they're just wavering, going, do I believe God? Do I trust the world? Do I believe God? Do, what do I do? What do I do? Keep your eyes on me. Then I'm looking down here, just constantly wavering about everything. And their faith is just trembling. He did not waver at the promise of God. He did not waver in unbelief. He grew stronger in faith. How? How does it say it? What's, the, what's after the comma? How did he actually grow stronger in his faith? He gave, he gave glory to God. Was there a son? Was there Isaac born yet in this time? No. It was probably 25 years from the time that the promise was spoken to the time Isaac was born. Talk about holding on to faith for a long time. That's incredible. And he gave glory to God, knowing what? That he was assured, you know what? If my God said it, my God will do it. I don't know how. That is true. But if my God said it, my God will do it. And where we go wrong is we, one, try to figure out how. Well, let me just back up. One, we sometimes don't believe God can. Okay, we start right there. Sometimes we just believe God can, can and can't. Maybe he, we think he, he wants to, and he's good, and he wants to give me that, but I don't think he can. Okay, if that's where you live, unpack that with the Lord. Because until that's unpacked, you will never be able to enter the rest of God. So some of us don't believe that he can. Some of us don't believe that he will. So we get his, we get his ability, right? Yeah, God's big, and he can do whatever he wants. But for me, he's not going to do it for me. He won't do it for me. So that's a faith problem. And then others don't give glory to God until after they receive the promise. Give me what I want, and then I'll praise you. Make it all turn out. Make it happen. Make it work, Lord, and I'll praise you. And we don't. And this is the example of Abraham going, I am... Of course, he didn't know that, but we know he's about 25 years out of ever seeing fulfillment of his promise, of ever getting his son. And he's saying, man, I, I glorify you. I glorify you not because of what your hand can give me, not because of what you can do for me, but because of who I've known you to be. I am the one that's the friend of God. Abraham was known as a friend of God. How amazing is that? And he's going, I just give glory to you because of who you are. You're glory worthy, period. And in giving glory to you, my, my faith is actually strengthened. And I'm actually even more deeply confident that you're going to do what you said you're going to do. I don't know how. I don't know when. But I know you will. That's what it is to believe God and, frankly, to enter his rest. Abraham was in rest in that moment. And then it goes on to say, and because he did that, verse 22, it was reckoned to him as righteousness, as perfect. Abraham was righteous, absolutely perfect. Jesus had not come. Sins had not been dealt with. And Abraham got the pass of perfection because he believed God at his word. He believed the promise. Do we believe like that? I'm not sure. I hope so. I long for that. 
Um, so flipping back over to Hebrew, we had good news preached to us in verse 2, just as they, just as the Israelites had good news preached, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Having and hearing good news will not profit you anything if you don't believe it. There's probably a Bible in every single one of our homes and every single one of our neighbor's homes. If it is never opened, that word will profit you nothing, right? Just because we hear good things, just because you're at Establisher and you hear good things and you hear good news, unless it's united with faith, it will profit nothing. This is living and active. This book is living and active. And it goes on to say that, actually, in this, in this chapter. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces through the bone and the marrow. It can see right into the inner parts of your being. But there are people that have one of these books that's alive, that's the breath of God proven over and over throughout history in their homes. And because there's a lack of uniting with faith to actually believe God, it is mere words to them, and it profits nothing pretty crazy. So we obviously have to unite faith with the word. And so I looked up the word united, not so much in the definition, because it's pretty obvious, but in the verb tense. And in my scripture, it has a PFPP by it, which literally means perfect tense passive participle. A lot of words, but it means this, and this changes the game right here. The per, if y'all remember anything about grammar, I'm just totally a nerd right now, but perfect tense, passive participle. A participle is something usually with an ing on the end of it, okay? Right here it says an ed. So this is why the deeper looking into this meaning is, is really rich because sometimes the English is not a correct, well, I won't say correct. It isn't a perfect correlation to the Greek, okay? So in the Greek... It's saying there was a point at which it started. There was a uniting with your faith at a certain point, otherwise known as salvation, right? You place your faith in Christ. However, this type of tense, perfect tense, passive participle, means it's like if you were to see on a board a dot, like a starting point, and it never ends. It's a dot with a line that keeps on going forever. So there was a point that you'd have where you did connect and unite and agree with God over the person of Jesus and believe in him. That has to happen, but it never stops. You keep on uniting your faith with Jesus. It has continuing result from that point in time. Day in, day out. My salvation was set at the beginning at for me, November 1991 or whatever it was, and I was seven years old in the bathtub. Different story for a different day. But that's where my point started, right? That's where I united my faith with Jesus as a, as a little girl. But then that salvation, sanctification starts. Becoming like Jesus, learning him, knowing about him. What does he sound like? What does he do? Fellowshipping with him, talking to him, hearing from him. All that, right? Friendship with God, engagement with God, all that happens for the point of the next day after I was seven to the rest of my life to today. 
And there's this constant, I'll say, battle and victory in uniting my faith in his word, at his promises, in his person every day. I-N-G. So then it goes on to say in verse 3, those of us who have believed, past tense, there's your little dot, there's your salvation moment. If you haven't had that, that's where it all starts. For we who have believed, see if y'all hear the different verbs, enter that rest. What verb tense is enter in? Present. That, that, that just stopped me in my tracks. I'm going, wait a second. Wait. We have believed. That's a past tense with a present result. Because I can join my faith in Jesus, I can have rest today because of my faith back then. Rest is available right now in this very moment. For we who have believed enter that rest, and he's going to describe what that rest is, just as he has also said, and he's quoting here from the Old Testament, actually quoting from the Psalms, Psalms 95, and he goes on and he says, although his works were finished, now he's starting to describe what that rest is. His works, capital H, from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, I love it, the author didn't know where he said it, it's hilarious. He, didn't, he did not know that it was said in Genesis. Verse 4, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested from all his works. So real quick, turn over to Genesis 2.2. We've got to read this story. These couple little verses right here. We all know the creation account. We all know kind of how he started, the spirits hovering, Genesis 1.1. And we also learned through Hebrews chapter 1 that the actual world was created through Jesus. Jesus was in the beginning. He wasn't a plan B when Adam and Eve screwed up. Okay, That's, that'll change your whole life right there. Jesus was in the beginning, and Jesus created the world, not God the Father. That blew me away when I saw that. So here we go. The heavens and the earth were completed, verse two, or chapter 2, verse 1, and all the days. And by the seventh day, Genesis 2, 2, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, set it apart, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So as I'm reading this, you know, story that's kind of familiar, right? I was asking the Lord, you know, what, what is it? I feel like there's something here I haven't seen. And here's kind of this dawning moment, y'all, that God gave me that I don't think I'll ever forget. God did not rest because he was exhausted. He rested because he was enjoying his work. And when our culture, when I think sometimes even of rest, you know what I think of? I'm tired. I think of exhaustion. I think of I need rest because I'm spent. Not the way God rested. That's not how God rested. And this whole chapter of Hebrews 4 is comparing our entering to his rest 
the exact same way that God rested in Genesis 2-2. But when we think of rest, we think of exhaustion, not enjoyment. We think of, oh, man, I've, I've earned it because I've worked so hard. That is not the attitude or the context of Genesis chapter 2. We know that for a bunch of different reasons, but one of the main ones is over and over after what God made, do you remember what he said? It is good. He didn't, oh, okay, day one, done. Day two, you know, he didn't do that. He was, he was celebrating goodness in the work. He was breathing out life, breathing out day and night, and just relishing in it, just enjoying it. And so good, like it was so good that on the seventh day, we didn't have days of the week. It wasn't like it was a Sunday back then. It just so happened to be the seventh day of creation, which man was not made, by the way. And he just, he just sits back. And he enjoys it. And as I read that, I'm like, Lord, here's what's crazy. His work technically wasn't really finished. Y'all know man was not yet created until Genesis chapter 3. So he had more left to do, which is how we know God was not exhausted and God was not lazy. Rest is not laziness and rest is not exhaustion. The rest that Hebrews 4 is talking about, this, this Genesis 2-2 God rest, is this enjoyment, this sense of accomplishment. And to see, man, God, you're good. There is work left to be done, yeah, and you're going to do it. But I see that you're good, and you are worth relishing and resting in and enjoying. How many people do you know enjoy God? Rest in God, otherwise known as enjoying him. They just enjoy him. They enjoy his presence. They enjoy his friendship. They enjoy his truth. They enjoy his love, how he winks at you and creates things and does things throughout a day. We just got back from Lighthouse Family Retreat like last night, actually. And I can't even begin to tell you how many God winks, how many divine intersections of heaven and earth met me at the beach with all these kids with cancer last week. And I'm just finding myself resting in God, going, Lord, this is so crazy. Because physically on a body level, yeah, I'm exhausted. But we don't live in this kingdom, right? Y'all realize our citizenship is in a different place. And my spirit and my mind and my heart were so energized and so resting all at the same time, watching God be God, watching him move, watching him do what only he can do, that it was just like finding myself going, man, you are good. You are so good. And God said, Sarah, that's exactly what I did in Genesis 2-2. That is exactly what the seventh day was all about, is to relish of who he is and what he does. Not from a sense of, oh man, I got so much left to do, let me take a breather. No. From a sense of, man, God, you are worthy of a pause. Think about musicians, right? Esther would know this as a vocalist. There is actually something called a rest 
in music from my days of playing piano. You, you play through a piece. You do your recital. And if, if you miss the rest, you miss the piece. Like my piano teacher would not pass me on that piece because a rest in music is just as important as a note. It changes the song if you don't play the rest. Get it? If you don't actually play the rest, it changes the whole song. And God, on the seventh day, which we know as a Sabbath, which we're going to actually talk a little bit about that. It's a little different than I think we think. In that creation order, he played the rest. He enjoyed it. It, it was melodic. It was amazing. It was him saying, this is so good. And man isn't even here yet, and it's so good. And then he went on and continued to work and do what was on the agenda next, which was us. And so I got to thinking about this idea that sometimes we think resting isn't working. And what's funny is that resting is the greatest work, that there is working in resting. Y'all know God is always at work. And depending on how you view him and where your walk with him is, for some of you, if you hear that God is resting, it means that he's distant and he stopped working. That is not what this is saying. God is constantly working because he's constantly resting. He's constantly celebrating what he does. He's constantly in control. He is constantly God. And so there's this idea of, wow, wait a second. If I rest in God, are you telling me that I could actually be more efficient, more productive, more creative? Absolutely, 100%, because that's exactly what we see that God did in Genesis 2-2. He went on to create his greatest work out of his resting. You, me. He created man in Genesis chapter 3 after he rested in Genesis chapter 2. But we're working, not the other way around. Does that make sense? So, so powerful. Changed how I see the creation account. Um, so rest, this idea, just for those that are grammar nerds like me, Strong's Concordance defines it like this. Number 2664, to quiet down, to settle into, to restrain, to rest entirely from the inside out. That's what the Greek word for rest means to settle into. And when I read that, the, the, the person, the idea, the picture that came to my mind was John, the beloved, the disciple of Jesus in the Gospels where it actually describes him on four different accounts, leaning in to the bosom of the Lord, resting, settling in, right? Nuzzling in there between his shoulders. Just reclining back into God going, yep, he loves me, I love him. I'm good. I'm good. I am leaning back into the king of kings. I have nothing to fear. 
I am so good. This is such the perfect posture for me to be in. That was him resting, him reclining at the table, literally. So as we go on, it gives the account, verse 5, um, it says, they shall not enter my rest, talking about the Israelites again. In verse 6, it says, so therefore it remains for some to enter it, which means some won't. Some will quiet down and settle into the person of God, and some will not. In verse 6, it says again, those who formerly had the good news preached to them, the Israelites, they failed to enter because of disobedience, otherwise known as unbelief. But, verse 7, he again fixes a certain day, today, right now. The invitation's available for you. You're not an Israelite. He is saying through David after so long a time, Just as has been said before today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Rest is available. His promises are real. They are attainable. They are receivable. If you hear him speaking to you, stop working. Rest in me. Believe me. You believe everything else but me. I dare you to believe me. If you hear him pressing on your heart, that is him saying today, today, right now, in this very moment, you can cease unbelief and you can enter into the rest of God in both of those connotations. For verse 8, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, and you all know Joshua is actually synonymous with Jesus, it's the same name, he would not have spoken of, of another day after that. But he did. So even back then in Israel, you remember how everything is a shadow. Everything in the Old Testament is a shadow. Not the real substance. So Canaan, the wilderness, Moses, Joshua, all these people that we hear about, y'all, they were all shadows of what he's talking about right here. Canaan, for the Israelites, was literal rest from their enemies, from all the Ite people, Amalekites, Philistine, Philistine, whatever they're called. Canaan was rest for them on every side. And he is going here, look, don't you understand? Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. He, through his body, his death and resurrection, has given you rest from all your enemies. And it isn't a place. It isn't called Canaan for you. It's a posture. It's a relationship with a person. You can be at rest with God because of Jesus. Y'all know in the garden, when Adam and Eve first stepped outside of God's will and ate a bite of an apple, he told them not to eat, thanks to the deceiving of a, of a snake. I never saw this before. They covered themselves up, right? They were naked, so there was shame and guilt, which I've heard. But when I thought back to it, I'm like, wait a second. They were restless. That was the first account of restlessness in the scripture. Up until that point, walking with God, hand in hand, a bit of a stroll, a bit of a calm, you can read in the context of those chapters. And all of a sudden, that will enters in, that self-will. I'm going to do this. I'm going to believe a lie. I'm going to do what God asked me not to do. I'm not going to believe God in this moment, I'm going to believe 
this snake, I'm going to believe myself, when that enters in, restlessness followed. And so if you look at it that way, Jesus purchased our rest back. He bought our rest back. The uncomfortableness with God, that can end. You do not have to be uncomfortable with God anymore. You don't have to be shamed. You don't have to have guilt. You don't have to wonder, Ugh, how do I stand with him? Is he a judge? Is he kind? I mean, I know what I'm supposed to think, but sometimes I don't feel that. All that's over. Jesus purchased your rest back. You're one with God because of Jesus. And he's inviting you to just believe that. And when you believe that, you enter into rest like you've never known. And restlessness goes away. Um, coming here to the end, this is a pretty famous verse here, verse 9, that says, There remains now today a Sabbath rest, a rest rest. That's literally what that means. A rest rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest, capital H, there it is again, has himself, that's you and I, that's lowercase h, also rested from his works as God did his. So let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Enter the Sabbath rest, the rest rest. And here's, here's where this is huge. I want to be careful how I say this because I love Sundays. Okay, I'm not bashing Sundays or Saturdays depending on if you're Catholic. This is not about a day of the week. This is about a state of the heart. There is nothing in this book, much less in this author who I personally believe is Paul, that has anything to do with the law. This has nothing to do with keep Sunday restful. Keep Saturday restful. It has nothing to do with that. Yes, there's beauty in that. And yes, throughout history, it just so happens to be that our churches take place on those two days. The work week is surrendered and it's kind of surrounded by those two days. I get that. But what is so easy to miss here is that you can put yourself right back into the law and miss the entire heart of God. Meaning, let me say it this way. Let's say you honor Sunday and you're digitally detoxing and you're not on your phone and it's this amazing Sabbath and you are restless in your heart, totally not believing God, totally in a panic. Nobody on the outside would know, but you are in a bad zone. You are battling for your faith, but you kept the Sabbath. It doesn't matter. God, right, for Samuel, what does God look at? He looks at the inner heart, not at the outward stuff that we do. And so we can go to Sunday and throw our hands up and we can keep that day holy and all these different things and yet not keep our hearts holy, not keep our bodies holy, not keep our hearts in a place of rest, not keep your mind resting on the Lord. It matter. 
what is over here if the inside is just falling apart? That's what we would call hypocrite, frankly. And honestly, I think the world's a little sick of it. And I kind of am too. Right? The, the, the Christian culture, I don't know how much rest has permeated the posture of believers. But we can keep a Sunday. Your shirt's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. I love that. She's wearing a shirt that says Love Sundays. Um, but y'all hear, y'all hear what I'm saying? Okay, so I, I get that Sunday is... is you know, I guess I want to say a sacred day. It is, but your heart is more sacred than that. The King of Kings has taken residence in your heart, not just on a Sunday. He has taken residence here, and he offers rest as a posture for you, not a performance. It is a way of living. So this Sabbath, that's why he's putting Sabbath here twice. There is a rest, rest, not a day of the week. Remember, Jesus came to fulfill the law. And the law people and the Sadducees and the Pharisees back in the Old Testament, they were going, well, it's the Sabbath. I mean, you shouldn't heal somebody on the Sabbath because this is the holy day of God. And their heart was so far from him. They did not believe him. They didn't believe he was God, but they kept the Sabbath. That's what he's kind of nodding to here and saying, would you believe me? What if you could live in a Sabbath attitude every day? Just a worshipful, God is good. I am resting in who he is, fully assured the way Abraham was, that his promises are sure, that what he says he can do, he can do. I may have some tension in my circumstances. I don't know how, I don't know when, but I am resting in God today. And it's a Monday. Like, that's powerful. And I think it's missing. And this chapter is inviting us back to that. In fact, it encourages us, if you're going to work for anything, if you're going to be diligent, because when I think of the word diligent, I think you better get moving, you know. Look what it says. Be diligent to what? Verse 11. To enter rest. Right there could have been a great place for him to say, be diligent to keep the Sabbath holy. Be diligent to go to church. Be diligent to know the, the law in the Torah, I'll be diligent to X, Y, Z. No. The one thing, the one thing, if you're going to work at anything, work to not work. That's huge. Work to not work. Work, be diligent, be fervent, fight for your rest if you're going to fight for anything. Fight for that type of rest, that Genesis 2-2 rest. Leaning back into God and saying, man, you are good. You're the one who makes the promises. You're the one who fulfills them, Romans 4-20. And I'm confident that you're going to do that. And I'm living today resting in you, not working for you. I'm leaning in and not restlessly living about, right? Such a different posture. And so then he interjects this verse 12, one that, you know, memorized in vacation Bible school. It's on three by five cards. And we always quote this one. 
But now do you see that it's in context with rest? So he goes on to say, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Basically put, God will know if you are inwardly resting or not. His word, if you're in it, will reveal to you if you are at inward rest or not. That's the power of the scripture. It will pierce through your thoughts and your ways and your intentions, right? And it will reveal to you as you read the word, am I resting in you today, Lord? Or am I striving about something? Am I worrying? Am I fearing? Am I unbelieving you in something? Because if I am, I'm falling short of what you've offered me today. And I don't want to miss out on the rest of you today. And his word will reveal that. In the community of each other, yes, but in his word mainly. And then it says, there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast. There's that theme, anchor, nautical terminology again that's used in Hebrews, anchor, tether in to Jesus. And what's interesting is the more you hold fast, the more you rest. The more you anchor in, it stays calm. The more you rest in Jesus. And it gives another character trait of him that he is a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He is not an, a sympathizer. He is an empathizer. He's been there. He knows what it's like to feel restless. One who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. So let us therefore draw near with confidence that kind of Abraham, Romans 4.20, confidence, to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. We are invited to enter rest and draw near. And so I just wrote down, out of resting, we receive help. Out of resting, we get to draw near. Out of resting, I get to see Jesus empathize with me. Out of resting in him, not working for him. The more we receive resting, the more out of resting we will receive. The more we receive resting, the more out of resting we will receive. And you'll receive mercy, grace, and help in time of need. Because if we're all being honest, rest comes under attack in time of need. That's when it gets a little tough. When everything's going circumstantially right, you can easily convince yourself you're resting in God. You may not be, and the word will reveal that. But you can at least convince yourself that everything's cool. It's when circumstances go crazy that all of a sudden it surfaces in you what really is in there. 
when externals go awry, your internals and who you really are comes out. And he is saying here, if you will but rest in me, you will actually get more out of life. I will hold you in the tension. I will hold you in the suffering. I will give you grace and mercy and help and anything else you need in your moment of need. If you will but rest, I cannot give you that if you're going to try to work for it on your own. If you're going to figure it out and go into logic mode and try to fix the pieces and I got to make this right, y'all, that's not resting. And Jesus, because his blood was priceless, free, it came at a cost. He will not give you the gift of rest if you're going to work for it. That wouldn't be a gift. And so I just, I want for you, I want for me, a life of rest, a life of the rest of God. This idea that out of celebration, an accomplishment of who and what God can do. I rest in that. There is nothing left for us to do but to believe that. And so he says, be scared. Warn yourself. Be fearful that you would doubt and unbelieve the rest of God. Jesus, thank you for your word, for your truth. Thank you that your word says that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. God, I pray that there would be a restless woman set free. God, that you would cease striving, as Psalm 4610 says, and that you would let us know deep in our inner man that you are God and we are not, that your rest is available today, that there remains for us a promise that we can enter in by faith not by effort, and we can live in a posture of rest. And so, Lord, tonight, throughout technology and even in this room, God, would you whisper to them by name and invite them into your rest. And where they're striving and where they're questioning and where they're working and they're trying to figure it all out, God, would you silence it right now in the name of Jesus. And bring about a posture, an attitude, almost a physical letdown, a relaxing in their shoulders, in their heart, in their mind, as they rest in you. We love you. We honor you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you are the one that is so set apart from other people, other philosophers, other teachers, other people that have claimed to be God because you don't give us a prescription of how to get rest. You are our rest. And you just simply invite us to enter into it. Thank you, God. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his powerful name. Amen. Enjoy auxiliary music. Lovely. Is that, is that all? Meg, is that on? Okay, good.